1861. The South had seceded, forming what they were calling a new nation, but President Lincoln had refused to acknowledge its existence because he refused to see a nation divided. Tensions were rising. Meanwhile, he had stationed Union soldiers in South Carolina, and there at Fort Sumter they watched, they waited, they listened. Until 4.30 that morning, Confederate mortar exploded above the fort, and soon after that, more came, and the Civil War began. The war that was brother against brother, father against son. By the end of this war, over 600,000 were dead. In a war that had divided the United States into a bloody and violent conflict. How do you stop a civil war before it begins? If you want to stop a civil war before it begins, what you have to do is you have to deal with the root of disunity and division. You you have to get down to, to the seeds of these things that lead to that kind of civil war. Well, in Ephesus, among the church, those seeds of division were already present. Ephesus was a, a large city. It was the third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Um, It was a cultured city. In fact, I think we have some pictures. It was a a cultured city. There it is in in modern-day Turkey. Uh, It was a cultured city. It was diverse. They had had a theater. They had uh, an enormous uh, temple to Artemis, the, the goddess Artemis. So it was a very religious city. And you can see the Temple of Artemis there in some reconstructions. Um, This city would have been uh, right around the size of Amarillo population-wise, around 200 to 250,000 people of all different backgrounds, all different professions and trades, and all different education levels. And scattered throughout this city was the church, house churches. Not, not one central meeting place, but churches that met in people's homes, maybe in synagogues, things like that, all throughout the city. And by the time this letter to the Ephesians came, they were already divided. Some had some animosity towards each other. Some, maybe even worse, some an indifference or apathy. Uh, they were separated by their background. Jew versus Gentile. They needed an authoritative word to set things straight. And that word comes in 62 AD from a man chained to a Roman guard, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, which we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time. Holy Spirit, would You be with us? Would You work in our hearts by and with Your Word? 
We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. So before we read this, we're going to do what um, I, I skipped over because I kind of was getting into it and thinking ahead. And so I'm going to ask Audrey to come up. And I want you to hear this from Acts. And I want you to hear this. Go ahead. Come on up, Audrey. I want you to hear this before we get into Romans. Because what Audrey is going to read to you is very, very important. And it gives you all the context you need as we start this letter. Can you hear me? The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 7, starting at verse 51, and ending in chapter 8, verse 3. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry about that. But it's perfect timing, because we need to hear that. So here, we see the martyrdom of Stephen, the, the first martyr uh, in, in the church. And remember those words of who was there, because as this letter comes from another uh, man who would later become a, a martyr, uh, these words are coming with authority to speak into the situation. You, you hear already these seeds of disunity. You hear already this conflict, this persecution of the church. And now, here, these words come. And we're going to ask a few questions. We're going to ask about this. Why do these words have authority? How is that authority used? And do these words still have authority today? Ephesians 1, verse 1, says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. These words that Paul's writing, it's not 
It's not just a, a simple greeting. It's not just him saying, hello, how are you? What he is doing is very specific. It's outside of the norm for the way you would greet someone in a letter in ancient times. And he's doing that right at the start to show them that his words have authority to speak into their situation. Why? Why do his words have authority? Well, one of the first things that that they would see here is that his words have authority because of his changed life. You heard what Audrey just read. It was about Stephen being martyred and there is a man standing there watching the cloaks, approving of this. And then this man named Saul begins to go about persecuting the church wherever he can find them. He is smart. He is passionate. He is dedicated. And he is a murderer. But how does this letter open? Paul. Not Saul. Paul. Why? Because Jesus appeared to him on the road. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then in this interaction, Jesus blinded him and changed him and changed his name from Saul to Paul. And from there on, everything is different in his life. He is changed. He goes from being the number one enemy of the church to the number one evangelist. And it gives him a certain authority when he talks about the power of the Gospel. We know this. If you think about how a changed life actually gives someone some authority to speak into that area of change. Imagine if, imagine if you were going to go to a recovery meeting and you, you go and you, you sit down and, and there's someone who's clearly in charge and they get up and they walk over and, and they start the meeting by saying, well, um, I'm glad you're all here. I'm glad that you came um, I've heard a lot about this addiction stuff. I, I, I've heard some things about it. Some people have told me some things. Um, but this is my first time really here or talking to anybody that has that. You would be sitting there thinking, why are you here? Why are you talking? Why, why do you have anything to say to me? What you really want is you want someone who lived it. You want someone who's been through it. You want someone who walks up and says, hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. You want someone who knows, who's been through, who has changed. And their words give them some authority because they lived through what they are talking about. Paul is a living, walking talking a body of evidence of what the gospel can do when it comes to moving someone from division towards unity. He went from being as far on the outside as you can get to being one of the leaders of the early church. He knows what he's talking about. His life has been changed. In fact, I love the gospel summary that he writes to Timothy. He, he writes to Timothy, he says that the saying is faithful and true that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul 
knows what he's talking about. He has lived what he's talking about. So as he writes to the Ephesians, just his own life and his own testimony give him some authority here. But that's not the most significant authority that Paul has. You see, the second reason that his words have authority is because of the one who sent him. You see, if somebody sends you a letter, if somebody sends you a, a letter, especially a, you know some, something official, it matters who sent the letter. Uh, in St. Louis, there was a guy back back when there was all this kind of this um, conflict over these red light traffic cameras. There was a guy, and he was kind of like a legend in St. Louis. And this guy was he was fighting this fight that these cameras shouldn't be here. They have no authority over me. You can do what you want. And so this guy would write messages on his dashboard and he would run cameras all day. And they would send him these, they would send him these letters. Um, Sir, you've run this red light, yada, yada, yada. You need, you need to pay the fine, all this kind of thing. And he just said, not doing it. Now, if you get one of those letters and you're in a place where there's no authority behind the letter, you can do that. But say you get another letter, very simple, just as inconvenient, that says you are to report to jury duty on this day at this time. What are you going to do? You're going to be there. You're, well, you're going to be praying that it gets canceled or settled or something. And then you're going to look real hard and see, now, do I have an exemption? And if you don't, you're going to be there. Why? Because it matters who sent the letter. It matters whose authority is represented by the letter that you receive. And Paul, as he's writing this letter, he says, this is coming from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. An apostle. Apostle is a sent one. And who is he saying sent him? He is saying Christ Jesus. Jesus, by the will of God, Christ, the Messiah, which means He is the King. He has authority. And this is by God's will. So so there you have everything, all the authority that could possibly be there. I mean, Jesus showed it. He showed His authority over nature, over people, over angels and demons. He showed authority to forgive sin itself. And then He proved that He had this authority in the resurrection so that He stands before the disciples and He says, all authority on heaven and earth is Mine. Jesus has that authority. And Paul is saying, I am one who is sent by Him. And by the way, it's by the will of God, the Creator. Paul is saying, I'm writing under that authority. What does that mean? It means you can ignore this at your own peril, or you can listen to it at your great benefit. But he is writing with authority from his changed life, and he is writing with the authority of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, this is the point where we need to ask a very, very important question. We need to ask, how does he use this authority? Because there are plenty of other people who claim God's authority, plenty of other people who say, well, I'm doing this because Jesus told me to, and you need to listen to me. In fact, there are plenty of other religions that will say, you know, God or the universe or whatever has sent me and I'm, I'm operating under that authority. And so we need to ask, 
How is this authority used? If you look at, at cults, you look at many other religions, what they're going to do is they're going to make this authoritative claim and they're going to say, God gave me authority. And then when you begin to look at what they say after that, they're saying, God gave me authority, so go do what's really good for me. Go do what's good for my, my respect, my ego, my pocketbook. Go, go do what's going to, ultimately what's going to benefit me. Because God said so. Paul doesn't do that. In fact, the New Testament doesn't do that. The New Testament is very, very different. And it is different because we follow Jesus who said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so what Paul is going to do here and what the rest of the New Testament does is that the writers are using their authority. They're saying, listen to me. I I have the authority to what I'm going to say. And what I'm saying is, remember who you are. Remember what Jesus has done on your behalf. Remember who you were, and then he changed you. See, look at what he says. He doesn't say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the idiots in Ephesus. (laughs) Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the pretenders in Ephesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the wannabes in Ephesus. Get your head straight. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Do you know what that means? Holy, set apart, you, you are holy. You have been set apart by the Master. It's like when you're having a, a special guest come over, and so you go through and you, and you clean the house, and you know, you do that for anybody. You get the house clean. You kind of get it, get it ready. And then mom looks and she says, get down the good plates. Those have been set apart. They're holy. They have been set apart for a specific purpose. They have been set apart. And what Paul is writing to the Christians in Ephesus is he's saying, you are saints. By the way, not just the believers that came from a Jewish background, not just the ones who came from a Gentile background, not just the wealthy, not just the poor, not just the educated, not the uneducated. He's saying, you are saints. Jesus has set you apart so that you can live out a purpose. And that is different than every other religion you will ever come across. Every other religion. What does it say? It says, if you live our way, then you can be set apart. Then you can be special. Then you can be holy. The gospel is the opposite. The gospel is saying, Jesus has set you apart. Jesus has made you holy by by nothing that you did. I love, I can't remember who said it. I think it was Spurgeon. The only thing you supplied to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Jesus, Paul is saying, Jesus set you apart. You didn't do anything for that. But he set you apart for a purpose. So now, go live out that purpose. The gospel is different than anything else. When we follow that, When we follow the gospel, it doesn't lead to abuse of authority. It leads to freedom to live out the purpose of the one who died to set you apart. 
So how is this authority used is a very, very important question as we look at these words. The next question is this. Do these words still carry authority today? Yes. Yes, they do. Thank you for coming. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) They do. They do. Um, And if you think about it, if you think about it, you you kind of instinctively know that um, something doesn't have to be contemporary in order to carry authority. It, It doesn't have to be written like yesterday or today or, you know, or, or maybe, hey, I'll wait until tomorrow and you can, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be written today for it to carry authority. You can think about, you know, a country's constitution. Think about a, a marriage license. I mean, just like be, be married. You don't do this, but other people do this. Because people have done this. They, they get married, they kind of, and then they, they, they leave and they go off and they go to all this other thing. And it's like they forget about it. And like 20 years later, they're like, hey, you know what? Let's get married. And they go and they follow this paperwork. And then somewhere in some system, something comes up and says, eh, hey, you, you're already married. Oh, but that was so long ago. It still carries authority. It still carries authority. Even the stories that we tell in our families can still carry authority. Where you have those stories and it's generations down the line and you're you're saying, oh no, 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 no. We don't don't do that. Or we act this way. Or we we don't go there. Why? Well, because three generations ago, this thing happened. And it still carries authority. The words don't have to be contemporary. They can still carry weight. They can still carry authority. They can still impact us and direct our lives. Time doesn't change that Paul's life was changed by grace. And time doesn't change that this message was sent by the risen Christ. It still carries authority today. We can be assured of that. Well, then the only other question that we have to ask is this. If these words carry authority, and if they still carry authority today, and if that authority is being used for my good and for my joy, how do I live under the authority of this Word? Look at this very last part of the sentence. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That, that preposition is so important And no matter how you parse it, you're going to end up with the same conclusion. You're going to end up with the same thing, that it is Christ's faithfulness that has brought us this far, and it is Christ's faithfulness that keeps us secure. See, Jesus knew that we could never be completely faithful on our own, and He knows that even still, we wouldn't be completely faithful on our own even though now He has a hold of us and we want to. Our desires shift when Jesus gets a hold of us, but that's okay. Because it is His faithfulness. You are faithful in Christ. It's like His faithfulness. It is wrapping around you. And that is the faithfulness that we have. And that is the faithfulness that, that God sees when He looks at us. And when we begin to understand that, 
His faithfulness has secured us, keeps us secure, no matter what, both now and to the end. When we see that, we begin to see that Christ's authority in our lives could never be oppressive. It will only oppress the wrong things. It will oppress the things that need to go. But that's not oppressive. That's freedom. It is the opposite. It is something that we welcome. We begin to ask Jesus, come show me. Come direct me. Come come guide me. Come teach me. Because if He is willing to live the righteous life that I couldn't live and die the death that I should have died and promise me eternal life in the presence of the Father, then I know that whatever He wants for me, whatever He wants for you, even if you disagree, even if I don't like it, whatever He wants for us, that He speaks with that authority. It's not the authority of a dictator. It is the authority, the the words spoken gently from a father who loves his child. And it is ultimately for our joy. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You. We thank You that You speak with authority in a world of such confusion. God, there is confusion, it seems, everywhere we look. And that confusion drives division and disunity. People yelling at each other in the streets, online, families that can't talk to each other. Relationships that are broken, and yet you bring us a word of peace. Lord, as we look through Ephesians, we ask that You would apply Your Word of peace to our hearts. Help us to respond to the authority and the clarity of Your Word that is for our good, not to condemn us, not to make us feel bad, but to free us from the things that divide us and free us from those things that would hold us back from a closer walk with You. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.